If you would, take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17 is what we're going to focus on. As Chip mentioned, I'm Andy Wyatt. I know I uh, have gotten to know and am getting to know many of you. I'm the new mid-adults pastor here at First Pres, and uh, my first few weeks have been great. Uh, as Chip mentioned, also, my wife and son just moved here, so things are getting better uh, now that they're here. And uh, look forward to uh, talking through this passage with you this morning and, and also getting to know you as well. So uh, thank you so much for, uh, for having us, and we're, uh, we're just so excited to be here. You'll notice uh, what's out of the scope of this passage this morning is verse 18 and following, uh, a controversial uh, passage beginning in verse 18 uh, in the history of our church, certainly as it pertains to Protestants and Catholics, but that's outside of the scope this morning. I'm not trying to dodge a bullet, uh, but it just is not uh, what we want to talk about. Who do you say that I am? It's a vital question that Jesus asks the disciples of the crowds, but also asks pointedly to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And he's asking all of us here this morning the same question. Who do you, first pres, say that Jesus is, but also who do you, individuals, say that he is? It's a question we must know the answer to, and it's of great importance for us. Let me read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, another Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for our opportunity to study it this morning. Would you write it upon our heart? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Growing up, to say that I was a huge Michael Jordan fan would be a huge understatement. I loved Michael Jordan. I had Michael Jordan shirts and shorts and a basketball, and I had the posters all over my wall and even the videotapes chronicling his whole basketball career. I idolized him. I wanted to be like Mike, as the traditional Gatorade tagline said. I, I wanted to be just like Michael Jordan, even with very short NBA aspirations at one point. They didn't quite pan out. Um, <coughs> but I love Michael Jordan. Love watching him play. My favorite thing I had of his was a white T-shirt that had a cartoon character of Michael Jordan on the front with a huge head and this little tiny body. And the head kind of looked like Michael Jordan. The only thing you could tell from the body was it had the Bulls number 23 jersey. Maybe you had one of those. My older brother had a Magic Johnson shirt just like it. Or maybe you didn't have a shirt, but you went to a fair or a carnival one time, and they painted a picture of you with this enormous head that did look somewhat like you, and they didn't really care what the body looked like. It was just the head. What is that called? It's a caricature, isn't it? It's, you've embellished, you've blown up one aspect of something, forsaking everything else. We use that term a lot when you're maybe debating someone uh, politically. Well, no, 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 you've caricaturized my point of view. You've, <coughs> excuse me, you've embellished one statement I made, forsaking everything else that I have said. You caricaturize someone. This is what the crowds were doing to Jesus. Was Jesus a prophet? Yes. 
Jesus is the great prophet. But he's much more than this. So when they, the disciples respond to Jesus' question, who do the people say that I am, there was some truth in what the crowds were saying about Jesus, but it wasn't completely true. They were embellishing one part of him, forsaking everything else that Jesus is, which he's our Savior, he's our Lord, he's our King. Now sometimes we do this. Caricatures can be intentional, but they can also be unintentional, right? We say that God is love, he's merciful, he's forgiving. He is those things. But if we only focus on that, and we forget that he's also just, he has expectations for our life, he's, he has wrath, then we become imbalanced and lopsided, and we might not be communicating the full picture of who Jesus is. But also, if we just focus on the other side, and we forget that he's merciful and loving, <coughs> excuse me, I need to get my water. I was in the Logo Sunday School class this morning, and we had a great spread of food. Now I'm making everyone jealous, and it's kind of, kind of, I think I ate too much. I think that's the problem. So, we too can unintentionally or intentionally form caricatures in our mind of who Jesus is. So that's what makes this question this morning so important. Who do you say that I am? Who do we say that Jesus is? Who do we say that he is? With our mouth, who do we profess that Jesus is? But also, who do we say that he is with our lives? Is our life and our words communicating the same thing? <coughs> who do you say that Jesus is on Sunday morning? And then who do you say that he is on Monday morning when you go back to work? We can't afford to get the answer to this question wrong. Because as Peter shows us in this passage, Jesus is the Son of God. But he's also our Savior. And so our testimony, it's got to be scriptural, but it's also got to be clear. We can't be vague, because the identity of Jesus is resting upon it. Who he is, it's not just simply some knowledge that we have. It impacts our worship. It impacts our evangelism. It impacts our discipleship. Who he is means everything to us as a church and us as individuals. So I want to look at this passage in three ways. Number one, who does the culture say Jesus is? Number two, who do we, the church, say Jesus is? And then lastly, how do we know Jesus? How do we even know who he is? <clears throat> Number one, who does the world say Jesus is? The section that precedes this, Jesus is warning the disciples about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we know what they thought of Jesus. They accused him of being a devil. So this is not who Jesus has in mind when he asks this question. Who does the culture say Jesus is? What, what are the people saying about me? Right? When he asks the question, who do the people say the Son of Man is? What does the commoner say about me? And the disciples would have known that's who they were mingling with. They would have known who the normal, common person thought Jesus was. And so they respond, well, some say you're John the Baptist, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You see, the crowds knew Jesus wasn't just some ordinary guy. They knew he had some sort of authority. They, they were putting him on the level of the great prophets. So that's something, right? Their, their aim was truth, but they didn't get all the way there. Their conclusion was understandable, after all. He was acting like a prophet. He was speaking authoritatively. He was speaking the word of God. But he's much more than a prophet. <clears throat> the Barna Group, you're probably familiar with them. They're Christian surveyors, and they uh, <clears throat> did a survey this year of, they asked many questions, but one of the questions on the survey was, who was Jesus? 
In your opinion, who was Jesus? So said the survey. Here were the top three answers. <coughs> Number three, he was a great moral leader. Number two, he was a great teacher. And the number one answer for the answer to the question, who is Jesus, he was a really good man. I imagine this is a pretty representative answer of what the common person in our culture in 2014 thinks of Jesus, and probably here in Macon as well. He was a really good man. <laughs> Not like you and me. He's, he's a little bit better than us. He's good character, captivating speaker, really compelling message. He's really good, but nothing more than that. I imagine you've seen one of these bumper stickers that I'm about to describe to you. I've seen a couple of times since living in Macon. I used to see them all the time living in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's a blue bumper sticker with white letters. It spells out the word coexist. You seen those? The, co the word coexist, each letter representing seven major religions. The T of coexist being the cross for Christianity. <clears throat> On the surface, this is kind of a seemingly harmless message. Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just coexist with one another? It's, let's just live peacefully. Let's stop arguing. Let's just coexist. But the implications for this are much deeper, are they not? It's saying much more than that. It's saying that none of you religions are really valid, or you're all equally valid, right? You all have a little bit of handle on the truth. You all have an angle on salvation or a way to God. None's better than another, so let's just coexist. Let's start arguing about who's more right. Let's just coexist with one another. You see, our culture is willing to say Christianity is important. Jesus is important. We'll even put him on the level of the other great religions in this world, but he's nothing more than that and nothing greater. Why would they say that? It makes sense if he's just a man, right? It would make sense to put him on that level if Jesus was just a man as the culture thought and even as the common person in Jesus' day thought. But if you think about it, if he is just a man, and this is what our culture does think, it's comfortable to consider Jesus this way. Because if Jesus is just a good teacher or a moral example, then I can consider what he has to say, and I can either take it or leave it. I can, I can listen to his teaching, I can hear what the word says, and I can, I can consider it, I can accept it or not. No big deal. I can go then choose another one or choose nothing at all. But if Jesus is more than this, then my answer to the question, who do you say that I am, is hardly an inconsequential decision, right? It now becomes a matter of worship. It now becomes a matter of something much more if he's not just a man. If he's not the Son of God, then there'd be no point in me fighting for him, no point in me arguing that, no, he is much more than that, and he should rightly be placed on the bumper sticker with coexist. <coughs> So do you see how important this question is? No matter who you are, no matter if you've, you've believed in him for years, or maybe you're trying to come to terms with him for the first time, we've got to have an answer to this of who do you say that I am? Because Jesus is not looking out to his disciples and say, what do you think about my teachings? What do you think about what I have to say? What, does, does, it, does it make sense? Is it palatable to the culture? What do you think about what I'm teaching you? He says, no, who do you say that I am? What do you think about me? Asked Jesus. And there are huge implications for this. Because if he is God, as Peter was going to profess in just a moment, then I've got to listen to what he says. If he's just a man, I can look at him like any other sinful man, 
peddling a moralistic philosophy, and I can decide to choose to believe it or not. But if he's God, I've got to do it. I've got to listen to him, and I've got to trust him. And whatever his word says, whether I like it or whether I don't, whether I desire it or whether I don't, I've got to follow it if he's God. We've got to reach this conclusion, just as Peter did. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And my belief in Scripture is predicated on who he is, not what he has taught. (coughs) No matter if I disagree, no matter if my opinions are different, no matter if the culture says differently. You see, it's important to know what our culture says about Jesus because it informs our evangelism and it informs our apologetics. But the more important question that Jesus, he turns from them and he turns, he zeroes in on his disciples, the men that have been following him for probably two years at this point, and he zeroes in on us and he says, but who do you say that I am? I want to know what the commoner says, but I really want to know what you say. So number two, who does the church say Jesus is? It is important, as I mentioned, to know what the culture thinks because it does help us with evangelism. But who do we profess him to be? The one who sits in these, the ones who sit in these pews week to week, what are we saying about him? What are we saying about him to our friends and to our co-workers? As the church, we must give an accurate picture of who he is, not a distortion and not a caricature. <coughs> Again, this is where we get uncomfortable. Because if he is God, then I've got to listen to him, and I can't pick and choose what I like and what I don't. So Peter answers. Lord willing, it's our answer as well. Disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up. He answers. He's a spokesman for the twelve here, as he often is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter's response reveals two important things. He says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. All the prophecies that we've heard about, you're it. Everything's been pointing to you. We're sinners, we have a sin problem, and we need someone to come and be our substitute, to step in for us and to pay the penalty for our sin. Peter says, this is it. He's the man. Secondly, Peter says he's divine. You're the son of God. So we've heard what the culture says, he's just a good man. Peter says, no, he's not just a good man. He's God himself. He is a man, but he's also God. So he takes it, obviously, a huge step further. Son of God, Savior of sins. Many churches today balk at the question of who do you say that Jesus is? Instead of looking to Scripture for their answers, they'll look to the culture to see what fits, to see what's going to satisfy. And of course, there are many reasons for this, to say that Jesus is the only way to God and to salvation. It's offensive. It's true, but it is offensive. Claiming that there are many ways to God is inclusive, which you know is one of the highest virtues in our culture today. But if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, why would I listen to him over anyone else? Why don't I listen to a good moral teacher who says the things I like? Why don't I, if I'm just looking for someone with charm and personality and good looks, well, I've got a lot to choose from. But all you've done is make that teaching subjective and meaningless. We follow Christ and his word precisely because he is the Son of God. We obey him because our Savior and our King, we can't separate the two. I can't separate his teaching from who he is. Who he is validates his teaching. I can't separate them. He's my God and my Savior, and we must obey every single command. 
We don't listen and follow his teaching on sexuality and abortion and giving and service and government and marriage and family because we like it necessarily. It's because he's God. That's why we follow it. Not just because it happens to meet my tastes and my desires. If I don't believe in him, then why would I ever exalt my moral beliefs over anyone else's? So who do we say that he is? Is he just a man or is he God? If we're really dead in our trespasses and sins and doomed to hell apart from him, do we want a man or do we want God? We need both. We need both, don't we? Do you see your sin and do you see your need of him every day? What is our testimony to our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends? What are we saying? Who are we saying Jesus is? Lastly, how do we know Jesus? Seems like this should come at the front. <laughs> but the last point that Jesus makes very clearly is how we even know who Jesus is. Jesus responds to Peter by exclaiming, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you nailed it. <laughs> you got it right. Way to go. But let me tell you something also. There's no amount of human insight or knowledge that you acquired that allowed you to come to this answer. In other words, you didn't figure this out on your own. All these great high titles that you have given me, you didn't come to this on your own, Peter. I just want you to know that. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't come up with these answers on your own. If we profess who Jesus is, we hadn't come up with this on our own. He's revealed it to us. I recall a Sunday school question that I got when I was very young. Maybe a Sunday school teacher asked you this question as well. Who had it easier? Was it easier to believe in Jesus back in Jesus' day when you could have followed him around and seen him do miracles and sat at his feet and listened to him teach? Or is it easier now, now that I have 2,000 years of church history and I have this scripture that I can consult and I have all these wonderful men and women who've come before me who've set great examples? Which is easier? Well, in Sunday school, my answer was always, well, it was easier then. If I could see Jesus, I would have believed him, and I would have given my whole life and heart to him. What's Jesus saying here very clearly? Which, who had it easier? Neither of them had it easier. <laughs> because it's not about you. It's not about you. Oh, this totally makes sense. It's about God revealing who Jesus is to you. He does it. He shows you the identity of Jesus. He convicts you of your sin, and he gives you a motivation to follow him. No one had it easier. Jesus says it again in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is not because of your award-winning personality. It's not because you're likable and you have great character or that you're sincere and humble, or that you give all your money to the poor. These things are great, but it's not why God loves you. He loves you because of his loving kindness. And the only appropriate response to that is worship and obedience. It's, you're overwhelmed at what he's done for you. Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do for you? How can I love and serve you now? I had a, a professor in seminary who tells a, a very funny and humbling story. Uh, that one Sunday uh, he preached a sermon and he got done with his sermon and he was feeling very good about himself. He said, you know what, I really nailed it. That was a great sermon that I just preached and he was feeling good. 
So he comes back to the back, and there's a young 20-something guy who comes up and said, Pastor, I, I, I think I became a Christian in the service today. And, you know, he, and he, he said, look, I was being very prideful. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, it was probably in that one point I had that was so good and clear, and, you know, you just... And so he said, well, I've got to ask, what, what was it that... It was actually the call to worship. The Holy Spirit impressed upon me the words of that psalm, and I, I confessed my faith in Christ, which, of course humbled the professor that I was just, but it also reaffirmed this very point. It's not human insight, human revelation. It's God himself that reveals him to us and and his identity. Peter reveals Jesus' identity and his profession, and it's got to be ours. He's our Savior and he's our God, and this is exactly who we need him to be. Can you see this? Can you see the importance of us answering with Peter our Savior and our God. John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, puts this idea in words that I could never aspire to do. So let me just read what he says. We are compelled to ask the question, how can a person who is dead in trespasses and sins, whose mind is at enmity against God, and who cannot do that which is pleasing to God, answer the call to follow Christ? It is the glory of the gospel of God's grace that provides for this. God's call, since it's effectual, carries with the grace whereby the person called is enabled to answer the call and to embrace Christ. God's grace reaches down to the lowest depths of our need and meets them, all with overcoming all the moral and spiritual inability and depravity. And that grace is the grace of regeneration, which God uses to renew the spiritual condition of the sinner. It's a change in our moral and spiritual nature, giving us the ability, because of this change, to embrace Christ through faith. We're made to recognize Jesus because of God. We can see him, yes, as a man, but he's God and man. And we see him as our Savior because of what God revealed to us. He's not just a good, a good man. He's not a strong moral leader. He's the Christ. Some of you may be familiar with the name John Huss. He was uh, a forerunner to the Reformation, forerunner to men such as Luther and Calvin. He was burned at the stake in the year 1415 for views that he had on the church. He renounced the church for its practices of indulgences, of the belief that you could pay for your uh, deceased loved ones and their salvation. And the practice of the church, you could even pay money to receive forgiveness. John Huss believed that that was wrong, and it is. Saying that you cannot purchase salvation or forgiveness for yourself. This is something that's only received by mercy and by repentance. Huss taught that, denounced the uh, events such as the crusade, saying the Pope had the no right to take up the sword in the name of the church. So the church threatened to burn John Huss at the stake unless he would recant his beliefs, and he would not. And so as they lit the wood underneath Huss, he began proclaiming in a loud voice, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, have mercy upon me. John Huss found Jesus Christ someone so worthy that he was willing to die rather than renounce his faith and trust. But did you hear what he said? What was his profession? Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He did it because of who Jesus was. Lord willing, we will never face this specific situation that Huss did. But you do receive pressure from the culture to change your view about Jesus because it's seen as outdated or you're seen as an extremist or worse. And I would tell you again that if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, 
And why would you just not recant? If he's just a man, if he's just someone who says some good things, some great moral suggestions, then why would someone die for him? Why would those around the world even today die for who Jesus is if he's just peddling a moralistic philosophy? But if he's the Son of God, the very Savior of sinners, if he's the Christ, then we would die for him. We follow Christ because he's the Son of God. Do you believe this? Do you see yourself in need of a God like this? Do you praise him because of this is who he is? If so, the praise and the, and the worship that you give him was revealed to you. And don't forget that. Tell all that you know that this God is not just another option that you have. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, that we would always remember that the faith that we have in you was given to us. We rejoice in that. Lord, would you give us faith in a stronger way in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him. We are nothing without him. Lord, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins apart from Christ. And thank you for him being our Savior and our God. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.